Welcome to Universal Basic Income University. Our first guest is Andy Stern, former president of SEIU and the author of Raising the Floor. So this is our first episode, and our goal with this podcast is to explore the concept of universal basic income together with our listeners, and hopefully we will learn along the way as we discuss the topic with the leading authors and scholars of the subject. So, Andy, welcome. Okay. Uh, we, we see this as kind of a learn as we're learning uh, situation, and we'll be, we've already lined up uh, most of the major authors uh, of books on universal basic income. So I, we think it's going to be a fun conversation. Sounds great. Okay. Uh, to start off with, uh, reading your book, Raising the Floor, How Universal Basic Income Can Renew Our Economy and Rebuild the American Dream. I was wondering if you could maybe start off with uh, how you begin the first two chapters of your book. What led you to realize uh, why this is an important topic, especially uh, your uh, your visit at MIT, I thought. It's a very strong example. Well, so I come from the one job in a lifetime generation, and it was very easy for people of my generation. You went to college or you got a union, you tended to stay there for significant periods of time, and then you retired, and the world was pretty straightforward about work. Yet, as my time the labor movement began to demonstrate that something seemingly different was happening in the economy well before you know, issues around Uber or Facebook or you know, what today are the, the major platforms. And the labor movement that's not particularly thinking a lot about the future or fighting every day in the present. And you know, as part of my involvement with the Open Society Foundation and a project based on the future of work, I go, you know, to MIT, which was a completely mind-opening experience. A, because most of the people there you know, were probably under 35. <laughs> Two was they they had a complete belief that they could solve the in the communities I come from that feel like the context or the conditions or the politics make it very difficult to solve problems. And they were reinventing the world. You know, they would find a project and make sand out of, or make glass out of sand in the middle of a desert or create prosthetic legs or build robotic entities that could kind of relate to people in nursing homes. So it was just a, a, a totally mind-opening experience about how fast the world was changing and how many of us who were in traditional work and at traditional advocacy. So Andy, um, I'm trying to figure out, is the book about inequality or is it about jobs I, I was trying to figure out what was going through your well, head both or one or the other well, well I, 
I started thinking about this because you know, in the 20th century, there were three things that sort of drove wages, hopefully, up. You know, one was unions, which kind of redistributed wealth within a company. You know, two was the market, which at least in the end of the mid 20th century, did a better job of a rising tide with raising all boats. And the third was government through minimum wage or EITC or tax policy. And you know what seemed to be happening in the you know in the beginning of the 20th century is that people were working as hard as ever before and wages weren't rising and the economists kept saying well you know we're coming off of you know this yeah. recession or difficulty in the economy or after 2008 uh, the crash you know it's all just a matter of, of the cycles of change and wages will keep coming back and they didn't and it just began to make me understand you know, that something was changing in the economy and you know, despite you know traditionally markets and unions and government being forces for raising wages that people wages had really been stagnant for 10 or 20 years and nothing seemed to be changing it. So I started out wondering, you know, what was changing to create inequality and, you know, began to see and hear and listen to people that were mm. involved, like Andy Grove with Intel you know, yeah. and, and Gordon Moore, you know, so people who were beginning to explain to me that yes, technology was beginning to have some effect on the economy and the unions were weaker and but you know that there was a tsunami of change that was about to occur by virtue of Moore's law, which is a doubling of the speed of the chip that was going to create you know all different kinds of industries and companies and opportunities that were really different you know than existed in the twentieth century so I, I started on why were wages not going up and began to then become enormously concerned that not only that technology was holding down wages now, but was going to really disrupt jobs in the future. I see. I see. Uh, so, Andy, I know that uh, your history uh, was at the president of SEIU, uh, and I was wondering if part of your decision of leaving, I know you go over this a little bit in the book, is based on the hope for what unions can accomplish in uh, currently, right now. Do you think that the union can ever come back in full force? I mean, it wasn't even full force when it was at its height, but do you ever think that there could be some revitalization of the union movement or do we have to start thinking about other things to uh, intensify labor? I mean, I think there's a, you know, clearly opportunities always have been and always will for workers to organize themselves, mm -hmm. you know, and make change, you know, whether it's the Google employees, again, the protests over the tipping uh, tips that were being taken away from them. So I think, A, people will always organize. I think institutional labor as it currently exists has not been willing to be thoughtful, creative, flexible, adaptive, 
entrepreneurial or risk-taking enough to kind of meet the needs of the of this moment of history. And I think it's hard to see that really changing with current leadership. Okay. Yeah. Andy, uh, could could you just briefly explain uh, so we can get into that uh, your proposal for universal basic income at the at the end of the book? And uh, I'm also particularly interested in in how you plan to fund to fund it, because we both have a lot of questions about about that. So my plan, which is, you know, was created to make a, a point, which was if you want to end poverty, as Martin Luther King said, give people money, not a yep. government program. And so we, I propose, you know, a thousand dollars a month for anyone under 65 and then topping up people over 65 who either didn't have social security or had less than that in social security so that everybody had a baseline every adult had a baseline of twelve thousand dollars a year and since the poverty level in the united states when i wrote the book was eleven thousand nine hundred and ninety seven dollars for a single person it statistically ended poverty so by that one public policy However, you funded it, you would, for the first time, using at least government statistics, you would end poverty in the United States. Right, and I, I understand. I understand that uh, how that would be put into place is uh, cutting some government programs. Could you go over which of those programs would have to uh, would give way to? Uh, the plan for universal basic income, or at least how it would be paid in, in some way? Yeah, I mean, I think there we're seeing in the presidential campaign, you know, many different proposals that have funding sources that are similar to some of the ones I suggested on the laundry list of ideas. One of them is a wealth tax that, you know, Elizabeth Warren is yeah. uh, promoting that asset tax. So, mm-hmm. you know, others relate to financial transaction tax that Bernie Sanders has talked about. You know. But, you know, my major changes to the current system is taking the programs that are effectively cash programs, EIDC, mm-hmm. food stamps, and things of, of that nature where we're really giving people cash, but we're placing all kinds of regulatory requirements and some cases drug testing and right. work requirements on top of them, and then taking large parts of what I call um, tax expenditures, which is the trillion dollars that we spend in the tax code by giving capital gains a different uh, tax rate than we do ordinary income or allowing people to shelter money through uh, retirement accounts, a lot of which are just distributed particularly to people on the higher end yeah of the tax structure so you know from existing money it's kind of i take from both sides you know tax expenditures which are mostly uh, taking money that tends to go to high highly compensated people and then the other side taking money that really is cash and repurposing it into just a unconditional cash grant and then you will need to add on things like asset taxes or financial transaction taxes, you know, or you know, some kind of surcharges on income tax over a certain 
a certain amount with some of the presidential candidates we're talking about. So, yeah. So I, I was. I, although an asset, an asset and a wealth tax go a long way to solving the problem. Yeah, yeah. I I, I was struck though, Andy, uh, that you you said you needed uh you know one and three quarter trillion to two point five trillion dollars, but just by cashing out some of the welfare programs, uh uh food stamps, housing assistance, and EITC, and uh, eliminating tax expenditures you were able to raise most of most of the money do, do you think that ubi could could be funded even if there was disagreement between republicans and democrats on some of your other funding mechanisms i mean i think there's going to be lots of disagreements among the democrats on uh, proposals on that. you know a you know a lot of people who you know fought very hard EITC, and now we're talking about as Kamala Harris has expanded the EITC. Yeah. I think it's a good, good idea. You know, they don't really want to sort of take the work ingredient out of the equation. You know, they... I want to push on the funding issue um, um, in two ways. First of all, uh, Representative AOC's uh, income tax is is estimated to only raise thirty billion dollars. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax is estimated to raise three hundred billion dollars, and Senator um, Sanders' um, the state tax is estimated to raise uh, maybe three hundred billion dollars, but over a, a much longer period. The uh, Estimate for the wealth tax and the income tax are are, are, are annual. Um, th those really sound like drops in the bucket compared to uh, your other funding ideas. So I'm just trying to push you. Are there ideas necessary for your universal basic income? And they claim they want to spend their money on health care and universal kindergarten and stuff like that. I mean, let's just. If we want to get into the full range of ideas, you know, the United States spends 70% of its GDP, 18% now on healthcare. Yeah. We can take that down to where every other OECD nation is in the world. We will pay for this. Okay. So, you know, there are things we can do in the current uh -huh. way we provide benefits if we have the political will and the program and the willing, you know, to take on in this case, that case fight with lots of institutional forces and pharmacy and medical equipment and the uh, you know medical profession so you know i don't i think this is a, a a very important question of how do we repurpose things and you know elizabeth warren had a you know i think has a wealth tax i don't know if she has an asset tax you know which at some people say a two percent to fund the 1.3 trillion dollars right and then there's all these different questions that I'm not an economist and I know you and many other people are more aware of sort of what what tax revenues or what revenues are generated from all this economic activity as well that offsets you know any of the costs which I don't take into account <clears throat> and if you wanted to I, I don't cap you know I make this universal. I don't have a cap on income. There are a lot of people who say cap it at $250,000 or 
somewhere else. Yeah, I think that has political issues, but from, sure. a, from a financing point of view, it's totally reasonable. You know that you don't need yeah. to give this to everybody else. You know what I always say to people is, I'm not worried about Bill Gates getting twelve thousand dollars. I'm worried about the over one billion dollar in tax breaks he gets every year from all kinds of other ways he can check their income or Amazon cannot pay taxes. So, you know, we want to pick out the $12,000 as if, you know, this is a tragedy that Bill Gates or Warren Buffett is getting $12,000. The tragedy is he's paying less taxes than his secretary. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get that. And the fact that everybody gets the Alaska permanent fund dividend is one of the reason why reasons why everybody supports it. Yeah, I think oh, what differentiates this from, more of the current programs that we already have, like food stamps, is, and also to some extent with, um, with healthcare things like that. That there are all these these cutoffs on on income when people who just either miss the cutoff can benefit or suffer because of what a lot of people think are somewhat arbitrary cutoffs when th- these things could benefit people more, especially in a changing job economy. See, I think the real problem here is that I find is people don't really want to focus on the tsunami of potential disruptions that's about to hit the country and the consequences of it. It's, you know, if we look at the last election, no one would doubt there are consequences of not having manufacturing jobs in certain Midwestern states. You know, the Pew studies of 1900 experts, half of them said that they think the disruption is going to be so significant if we don't see anything, we're going to have civil unrest. Mm. So, you know, there's a huge tsunami coming and, and, you know, people want to, like climate change, sometimes just tinker, you know, with those small policy decisions. I think if you decide that the way to respond to a tsunami of displacement in work is to give people money, you know, then you will find policies, you know, that reward enough people with enough money, you know, to at least not have the devastation we had, you know, in poorhouses in England in the last, you know, in the industrial office. Sure. Uh These transitions have not been very nice for most people. No. People always kind of like, well, jobs will come back, you know, and maybe it'll be 20 or 30 years. And I I keep saying, you know, it's not a real, really good life to live in poverty for 20 to 30 years. The devastation to your family and your kids is pretty big. So that's really a nice thing to say. You know, the jobs have come back. But if what happens when they, if they don't? And more importantly, what happens while we're waiting? Yeah, and uh, things are even more uncertain because I guess unlike uh, in the 50s or, or earlier when I get automotive, the automotive industry was very booming and you could kind of tell how the country was shifting, that it was adapting towards, uh, for example, I, I guess, fitting in more of uh, 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 transportation by car, that the roads were adapting to mm-hmm. that. Now you can't exactly predict what even people will be doing, what the jobs will actually look like, so much less of what the skills would be. Uh, right. And it's the only thing that you kind of really can predict is that most people won't be skilled enough in a lot of these STEM requirements to do them. It, it, and I, so I take two things. One is I always, 
remind myself that if when I left SEIU in 2010 and I had said you know, the, the largest uh, media company in the world would have no writers, Facebook, and the huh. largest retailer in the world would virtually have no stores, Amazon, and the largest transportation company in the world would have no cars, and the largest hospitality company, Airbnb, would have no rooms. People would have, like, locked me up <laughs> and said, you know, that's preposterous. So it only just says how quickly the world is changing, and I think there has been an appropriate assumption that STEM you know, jobs are the jobs of the future, but if you talk to many people who are involved in artificial intelligence, because this is the first economic transition that we're both affecting muscle work and mind work at the same time, you know, a lot of people say the STEM skills, you know, are just going to be replaced by, you know, artificial intelligence. Now, clearly at the high end of anything, you know, there'll be the 10 or 20% of people who have, you know, the high-end skills, but, you know, I think there's, we're seeing that some of the assumptions we made that we were then worried about how we're going to train people for STEM jobs, there are a lot of people saying STEM jobs, you know, we have more people with STEM skills than there actually are STEM jobs at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andy, um, I, I, I know you mentioned in the book that you're looking for more research on this, but what, what, do, what do you say when people ask you, uh, is this going to encourage laziness and people will not work. And there is this claim that uh, it will just encourage uh, that kind of uh, uh, b- behavior. Since you since you wrote the book, what have been your thoughts on that? Is there been any any tests of this of this information? Do you care about this objection? Uh, no, I mean I I listen. I always worry, you know, about labor force participation. What happens to African American? You know, kids in, that have like 20 to 25 percent labor force participation in terms of their life and their values and their belief. You know, what happens to Midwest, you know, older workers who work their whole life and, you know, end up being in a service sector job without benefits and wages. So, I th- listen, I think it's all important. You know, I think there's two issues. First is we need to just test this out. You know, yeah. We, we did this in the 19... 19- 70s with Milton Friedman, we, we actually tested universal basic or guaranteed income in eight cities in the United States. No one found, you know, that was the result. Finland just did a study. It didn't solve the problem which they were trying to do of getting people back to work earlier. But you know, no one said it's caused catastrophic. You know, people are sitting at home and you know and and doing things. You know, kids are sitting at home playing video games now. You know living right. with the character. So I think it's a fair question. It's an important question. It's something we should test out. I think the second issue is, so if that's not what you want to do, and there is going to be all this disruption, what's your plan? Are right. You to force everyone to, you know, is this going to be, you know, everybody wants to talk about guaranteed jobs. And listen, we certainly need lots more people working in infrastructure but, you know, when you look about automated truck and delivery drivers, you know, which is the largest job in 29 states in America, the second largest in 12, you know, it employs somewhere between two and three and a half people directly and another two or three indirectly. And, you know, anybody looks at the Green New Deal, the infrastructure jobs that are being proposed there, are, you know, maybe a million if you were lucky. 
Yeah. You know, you know. So, you know, people say, I don't like your idea. I think, fine, great. So what is you, what are you going to do? And then everybody right. says, well, give, well I'll give everybody a job. And then I say, okay, so let me see how this works. And I think what you're saying is there's all these caregiving jobs on one hand that we need. Right. And then there's all these infrastructure jobs. So what you're really saying is the women and people of color should be sorted out, you know, to take care of parents and kids and people in nursing homes. And the white guys are the guys that are going to work in infrastructure. Mm. Like, that doesn't sound like a solution. And I guarantee you the wages aren't going to be equal. Sure. You know, between them. It sounds like we're just resorting America into race and gender roles that we've been trying to overcome. So, I, I say as, you know, to people like yourself, Joe, when your son, you know, is ready to to clean my feeding tube, right? And can't find a job. I'm okay with guaranteed employment, but I don't think that's what people want for their kids yeah. and their families to force people into employment to be at you know serving other people at probably pretty low wages and probably very coercively. And if Republicans have anything to do with it, then they'll drug test you. You know, and torture you with regulations, you know, about what you can spend your money on and probably shouldn't have a union. And, you know, it'll just go on and on. Right. Incredible bureaucratic and, and labor market disruptions that are unintended. Even. Well, that, that's that's uh, those are those are really powerful, powerful arguments. And, 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 and it makes an impression on me that. You 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 make very moral ethical arguments talking about Martin Luther King and the UN Declaration of Human Rights that are very powerful in the book, uh, but you also make very, I'll say, you know, empirical and factual fa- factual arguments. I like that combination in your book. You mentioned the experiment in the town of uh, Dauphin in uh, in Manitoba, and uh, there's a, a young uh, assistant professor from University of Wisconsin, who did a study and found that there was a very small amount of reduction in work from the citizens, all of whom in that town, as you say, got uh, got a form of basic income. And, and he made the case that m- many of them spent time getting education or helping children or helping sick people or going to more city council meetings kind of strengthens your argument. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, people want to believe kind of the worst stereotypes of people and so far whether it's in Alaska you know it's, it's people are not all going down to you know the casino when they get their check and gambling mm-hmm. it away you know the, the, the research seems to say they pay off their debts is the number mm-hmm. one thing they do and a lot of kids apparently you know use the money to pay for the things that their Pell Grants don't pay for in their community college like books and fees yeah. Things you know, we've done the experiment in Finland. We've done it in Ontario. You know, not that long in either case, but none of it was people were gambling, drinking, whatever people think might go on. You know, and at some point, honestly, it may be good if people aren't working if they can find ways to feel like they're productive human beings. I'd like to yeah. always say that when Maslow created the need hierarchy, he didn't say the top of the pyramid was a good job. You know, he said the top of the pyramid was self-actualization. And there are a lot of people who are trying to be and want to spend their life being artists or writers or other, you know, kinds of 
self-fulfilling employment, you know, that have to be a Uber driver in between or wait a table, you know, that maybe would live in communities where they had more self-fulfilling, more actualizing experiences than working in a bullshit job. So I think there are a lot of questions here, but, you know, people who say this is what's going to happen have not yet sort of pointed to the, you know, experiences other than, you know, a fair question when people don't have enough money and they live in West Virginia and other places and, and are in despair, they're doing opioids. And I would say, give those people $10,000, I bet you'll have a redu reduction in the opioid usage. People have a little less despair. Yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's only giving people so many options, especially when they live in a community that's just so hollowed out because because of those manufacturing jobs leaving and outsourcing, I mean, it it's not so much of as a decision as what other people think that their lives are like this. It's really a, a no, and then, and then those yeah. of us who live in in cities where you know more and more the sort of jobs are being created, you know, understand that the you know pick up and leave from. Akron, Ohio, you know, and move to a big city, there are real estates and, you know, besides, can you find a job that pays enough? You know, now you have to deal with, you know, increasing costs, leaving your family and your support system, your religious community, whatever it may be. You know, it's, it's like economists say, well, why don't people just move? But as the Times wrote about recently, there's a myriad of reasons, you know, mm -hmm. particularly as people get older, that they're just not going to pick up you know, and move away looking for a job. They, you know, they find a better plan just to try to live in their own community and get by. And there's a reason I always say that, you know, we have a record number of kids, you know, living with their parents right now. And it's not because we're increasing family values in the country. It's because it's an economic necessity mm. for people to be able to have some of their housing costs underwritten in order to be able to live, you know, a lifestyle more like the ones their parents had. So, you know, there are just lots of issues with not enough wages and then a tsunami of uh, disruption in jobs coming that, you know, it's easy to be, you know, trite about and be an economist, but when you deal with real yeah. people, it's really a problem. Sure, I, there's so many, only so many options you have, especially when I mean, everyone's life is governed in some way by their their job. People move for their jobs. They would even choose moving for their job over staying with a loved one or something because that's really not about choice or anything. It's about survival. Yes. You know, and yeah, I just think, you know, and this whole idea we're going to retrain people. I mean, this has been a discussion going on for 40 years. Uh, you know, and yeah, the the best retraining programs we ever had were companies who actually had jobs, retrained the people to the jobs they were creating, whether you were a machinist and you got retrained to work on a new piece of equipment that the company was bringing in, or you were a researcher and you learned to use, you know, the internet and, and other kinds of tools to be more effective. You know, that was the one training program that tended to work and now you know companies are cutting out so much of their internal training and just expect to hire people with pre-existing skills 
you know, which is just unrealistic. And then everybody says, well, well, the community colleges should do it. But everybody then says the community college isn't providing the right kind of skills for my particular job. And we have this circle where in the end, the workers are just left unemployed. Employers are saying, well, I can't find anybody skilled and there's no mechanism to match or anyone willing to pay to train the people for the jobs that may exist, even though I think some of that's hype as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Andy, I wanted, to, I wanted to push on that because, you know, from, from your position as, as being the president of the SEIU and, and, and a major player in the uh, labor organization of the whole country, what did you see when you looked at other unions, uh, the auto union, the machinists, a variety of other unions about whether that job replacement and that job retraining took place for, for, for their workers? Do, those are kind of like test cases. What, what did you see happening? Well, what I see happening, particularly in let's start with manufacturing, which is we have the highest record of, you know, economic output in manufacturing with the fewest number of workers in history. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what you've seen is technology and it's not just robots, but technology, you know, being able to create much more efficiency and productivity and people being replaced and, you know, and I haven't seen, particularly in recent times, you know, it was one thing when we were retooling the plant, you know, to go from making a compact car to a light truck or something, you know, where we did train people, you know, to work on the new machinery or figure out how to put the the engines, you know, which were of different size, you know, to put them, produce them in a in a different way. But we really haven't seen anybody take the blue-collar worker and turn them into a white-collar worker inside an auto plant. And now I just think, as an aside, I think the fascinating thing about the most recent General Motors layoffs is there were 6,000 white-collar workers to only 4,000 blue-collar workers right? You know, laid off because all of a sudden, you know, artificial intelligence, you know, computers – Things are being able to eliminate, you know, the HR people and the accounting people and the logistics people and replace them with programs and platforms. This is also somewhat off topic, but I just remember uh, growing up and I remember watching like Meet the Press a lot. And uh, after uh, there's be some commercials targeted towards a lot of these uh, business types who would be watching and even then, like, say, like 10 plus years ago, there would be these very uh, abstract and like, ethereal commercials that people kind of make fun of now for having that corporate speak of talking about innovation and saying that we have all these platforms right. that can predict uh, the future or whatever and uh, understand costs uh, analysis or something. And then, uh, you know, I was a lot younger it it seemed like it seemed like nothing it just seemed like random words they were spouting but now i think we've moved so far ahead that 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 actually wasn't a joke that things are actually being run by by algorithms and replacing people yeah i mean i think it's just becoming clear clear and what's interesting is all the people Throughout my life, I, I I wasn't great fans of, you know, McKinsey, Bain, mm. 
Boston Consulting, the OECD, the World Economic Forum, these are the people predicting disruption, right? They're the people in the past who would tell you, oh, there'll be new jobs and, you know, companies will figure this out. I mean, they're, they're screaming, you know, fear. So, you know, all of a sudden we're now, you know, we want to ignore the people who we used to let advise us, our companies and countries who are telling us there's a major amount of disruption coming. And, you know, we economists want to debate whether it's true or not. Other people want to debate how much, you know, whether it's UBI or guaranteed income costs. But as I like to say in my book, the military, when Kim Jong-un you know, meets with his commanders and some truck heads to the military silo or some messages sent, the American military, you know, has scenarios about how to re- reposition its fleet, you know, how to put people on alert, how to reposition satellites, and what we're going to do if it turns out that some kind of activity is possible. So, you know, the military just understands we have to have scenarios, whether it's for climate change, which the Trump people don't seem to like, but they do. The military feels like there's tremendous problems about conflict as a result of climate change. They have scenarios. And in the public space with politicians and economists and academics, we want to have a debate rather than have scenarios. And it's it's kind of depressing, you know, that like no one has put out a, jo- a jobs program that really can explain to you what kind of jobs, what will they pay, what will be the administrative mechanism to find the jobs, how long the jobs will last, will it have benefits? You know, this is like irresponsible. It's, there's a, a disruptive force heading our way. If this was a wave, you know, it'd be kind of crazy to say, do you think we should build a wall here? Or do you think, you know, maybe we should move back 10 feet? Like people would be, you know, creating scenarios for all kinds of situations. And we do have a wave coming. No one disagrees. The only question is when, after the wave washes over us, how long will it take us to rebuild in terms of jobs, if at all? Sure. And we uh, just sit I'm- around having, like, I have a lovely debate. Well, people's lives are being, you know, potentially ruined as we've seen in manufacturing. I'd like to go off of that a little bit and uh, talk about how uh, innovation and uh, technology can be uh, supported by politicians, for example, but also how can they also support UBI? I feel like the two aren't necessarily directly at odds with each other because you argue that it is important to support innovation and also uh, entertain the idea of UBI to give people a basic income. But knowing how I feel politicians, if you look at, say, the um, uh, the Amazon facility that wasn't just uh, built in New York and uh, de Blasio kind of lamenting that it wasn't built, I feel like a lot of these politicians are coddling these disruptors rather than focusing on purely the jobs and even if they are focusing on the jobs it's it's less about uh how many jobs or a long-term solution and more about that there will be jobs so i guess my question is how can a politician weigh both the investing in innovation that is disrupting but also uh 
use UBI in some sort of policy? I think it's pretty clear, and, and I, unions are public example number one, that any attempts to stop technology throughout history from Luddites on has not worked. You can create friction, you can slow things down, you can make it more difficult, but no one's ever stopped it. You know, when people wanted to, you know, keep family farms, you know, agribusiness won. You know, because they were more efficient, had more money, could charge less. You know, people wanted to try to preserve taxis. You know, Uber and Lyft have kind of ended that, you know, lovely, heroic, historical way because customers and consumers want, you know, better service at better prices. So, like, I don't think the question here is how we're going to stop innovation. And for better or for worse, capitalism is fueling it. Mm-hmm. And most of the fuel, if you talk to people like Stephen Birkenfeld, who mm-hmm. runs investments at Barclays, most of the fuel is ideas that reduce the need for labor, right? right. So that's, that's the big cost, you know, besides whatever the, the commodity might be, you know, the big cost is, is work. And so technology is going to roll on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just controlled by a single country anymore, China and others you know, are going to put it into play. Capital is global. They're going to buy it. So I think it's a losing proposition. I think the question is, you know, what happens to people as a result of this? And this is where UBI, you know, whether it's a supplement to work, you know, whether it's a replacement for work, whether it's a scale where 10,000 is the minimum and it goes up higher if you make, you know, there are a lot of interesting policy questions. But the point is, People don't have money. They're going to be poor. If people are poor, they're going to live badly. If people are going to live badly, bad things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know how I know you know how I know universal basic income works? Because almost every friend I have who's a parent is providing parental basic income, a non-governmental program where parents <laughs> subsidize their kids. <laughs> they they take them on vacation. They help with their housing. They help with their health care. They, if they get into a bad situation and, you know, a car accident and need repairs, parents step in, and it is an enormously positive, stabilizing force in most cases. It is a difference between people living on the edge, like mm-hmm. half of Americans do, with $500 in the bank, or having their own personal safety net. And no one's going to tell me that kids who have parents who can step in at times of crisis, don't have more security in their life, you know, and less fear and insecurity than people living with $500 or less in the bank. And so we're living with parental basic income. Someone should just do the empirical study. It's not like kids aren't working because of it. This is, these, these are not like trust fund kids. You know, these are just middle-class kids who can't yeah. necessarily, you know, that living in their parents' house is a subsidy. And then the last thing I want to say just about subsidies is, you know, we get all worked up about the Amazon subsidies in New York, a lot of which were actually pre-programmed, having nothing to do with Amazon. Amazon gets a subsidy, as does Walmart and all these other low-wage employers, because we give people EITC and we give people food stamps, which is just another way Ah. of giving people basic income, right? It's just a different format. You know, if you're a Walmart worker and you're getting your health care through Medicaid, you're getting some of your food 
through food stamps and you're getting, you have kids and you're getting EITC, why isn't that a UBI? Hmm. Yeah, I, 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 liked, I liked your point on page 212 of your book where you virtually called the trillion dollars in tax expenditures. And I think there's about a trillion every five years in corporate tax relief. You, you right. kind of virtually call this basic income for corporations. And it's similar to what you just said. Uh, people yeah. don't know about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they don't know about that, and you know they sort of accept that we're going to subsidize people who corporations don't pay enough. Even you know the Waltons each have forty-six million dollars. Billion. Know, the three, the original family members, right? And the government pays for Walton, some of the Walton employees, healthcare, EITC, and food stamps and probably childcare benefits as well. So we've decided it's okay to redistribute and let the government pick up the floor. All I'm saying is I don't like a floor that has all these bureaucratic regulations. And again, if you want to have a floor, give people cash to be the floor and not yeah. make them jump through all kinds of undignified, you know, governmental, you know, power relationships, you know, that government can have over people who need things from them so mm-hmm. so to, to push on the, the 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 issue of the of the billionaires have there been any uh let's say billionaires really rich people who have told you they're persuaded by your book whether you can uh, name them or not i mean i know recently bill gates came out in favor of a, of a wealth tax or i mean an estate tax uh and he's positive on those ideas are there others well, yeah, well, listen, Mark Zuckerberg gave, you know, two, whatever, a year or two ago, his keynote yeah. address, the commencement was for universal basic income. You know, so you have a whole group of billionaires, you know, Richard Branson's for universal basic income. Yeah, Elon Musk is for universal basic income. You know, what I, you know, which is two parts. One part is that people who are in the space of creating the future, uh-huh. I have a good idea how disruptive it's going to be, mm. right? Because they live every day with the engineers and the, uh, you know, the, the technology and the algorithms and the artificial intelligence that's creating the future, you know, and they, they understand where it's going. And the other thing is, I, you know, I, I think, you know, we've seen many times in history when there's a potential for social unrest, you know, people make concessions you know, in order to provide stability. And so I say to the billionaires of the world, this is risk management, uh-huh. right? If you thought there was going to be a hurricane, right, you would, your risk manager would tell you, you know, we got to spend more money building, you know, more reinforced warehouses. You know, this is risk management. If you want to preserve your wealth, if you ha- if you don't kind of get what's happening now with whether it's Elizabeth Warren, AOC, or Andy Stern, talking about redistributing yep you know people have too much on one hand and other people have too little and if i was a smart billionaire i'd try to you know say how much how bad could it be to give up one percent of my assets every year in taxation i'm probably going to increase them four to five percent at the minimum you know just through stock market or real estate appreciation so to give up one percent i'm not giving up what i have i'm giving up part of my increase you know, and wouldn't that be a smarter thing to do than waiting until someone starts kidnapping my kids? Yeah. 
So let me ask a question about conservatives. Uh, you talk a lot about Milton Friedman uh, and the Nixon administration experiment. Uh, how have conservatives responded to your book and your ideas since the book came out? Well, conservatives like two things that are in you know in my book particularly. One is they hate the multiplicity of government programs. I think it's and I happen to agree with them. It, it, you know, it tends to be coercive you know, on people and, you know, they don't like a lot of other things they think are, you know, are coercive that I disagree with them on. But, you know, I do think they're right that, you know, cash is a less coercive, you know, way to provide assistance to people than, you know, a huge bureaucracy of government people who I used to be one of, you know, who are enforcing regulations using the power of the state. So, I think they like the idea of, you know, cash, no bureaucracy. They also like the fact they will tell you that, uh, you know, the one thing they would say the government does well is write checks. They would tell you the government writes checks like their Social Security and other things better, faster, and cheaper than any other business, you know, in America. So they like the fact that it's, you know, there's an efficient way to do this you know, that can be done, you know, effectively. Uh, and then, you know, they, you know, don't like, you know, they would cash out way too many things, you know, because they don't really like a safety net necessarily. And so, you know, that's where you start to go awry as to, they like the concept, they like the mechanism, they may even like the amount, Mm-hmm. But they don't like it being built. They they would ha- their floor would be way lower than mine because they would like cash out food stamps and in some cases not food stamps they would cash out Medicare and Medicaid and in some cases Social Security. So they just take it to the extreme as you might expect. Mm-hmm. But theoretically, they have a lot more support for UBI than they would for guaranteed jobs. I think also, yeah, the simplicity of the program is also a very key feature of it. And it's it's not like you have to apply for a disparate amount of 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 other programs. It's very straightforward. It doesn't doesn't interfere with the private sector either. You know, there is a private employment market in this country. Once you do guaranteed jobs, which in my beginning of my work career, there is something called CETA, you know, which was a government jobs program. And they, you know, there was constantly a fight about was this displacing existing jobs? Was it undermining unions? Was it really training? Was it, you know, politicized because people's friends were getting the jobs? You know, so government jobs has a, you know, a lot of disruptive, besides bureaucratic problems, it has a lot of disruption to the private labor market. Andy, I, w- I want to push on on uh, another issue. Of, of financing um, your 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 focus your focus in the book is uh, taking existing expenditures and either applying them to universal uh, basic income like corporate tax expenditures or uh, substituting some current uh, welfare payments but when you really look at the Alaska permanent fund what what thing that they've done that's really interesting uh, and you know I'm interested in Kelso's ideas, so I I bring this up in that in that vein. 
that right, uh, right. Uh, they get a pile of capital uh, and then they finance the universal basic income by investing that capital around the country and using the, uh, uh, the, the, the capital gains and the dividends to finance the income. Is, isn't that uh, another useful way to think of financing this? If you can get the, the, the initial account funded with some bunch of billions of dollars, then you could fund the dividends and the universal basic income off of the uh, income on it. Yeah, no, you could have a sovereign wealth fund, you know, which Norway does from its oil reserves. You know, Alaska is a little bit different. You could do it off, some people would say, like Peter Barnes, let's do it off of carbon. Yeah. And other people like Bill Gates say, let's do a robot tax, which just wouldn't be, you know, we think about it as robots, but, you know, it's more of a technology tax. So you could, you could, you could take money from estate taxes and asset taxes. And, you know, again, I'm not, you know, an investment banker, but unfortunately there are too many in this country who could figure out how much, how big a pool would you have to accumulate? And honestly, it would make so much sense to do it right now because right now we don't need it as much. And we, you know, we have some issues about redistribution, but we're not facing yet. You know, we we're facing an income problem, not a jobs problem. Mm. So it would be really great if we started taking sources of, of, potential revenue, you know, taking a percentage of all patents, you know, 1% of a patent value, you know, and, and began to build a sovereign wealth fund, exactly as you said, that's over time financed, you know, a significant portion, you know, or some portion, you know, of a universal basic income, you know, being really smart. So far, we haven't been so smart. Uh, going back to my uh, question before about the, uh, innovation and also politicians supporting UVI. I understand that technology won't halt and it'll just keep marching on and we'll have to adapt to it. But I guess my main my main point there was uh, how um, how exactly would you would, would you add the gig economy on top of UVI like as for someone to attain more wealth, is that something that? Because I feel like politicians would advocate for that if they yeah, were. I, I just think, listen. Yeah, we we have a floor. I don't I don't think anybody is assuming. I'm certainly not that. Therefore, people will not work at all. Mm-hmm. I think the bigger problem will be where they're going to find work if they want to work, as opposed right. to. All of a sudden, I'm going to take ten thousand dollars. I mean, come on, that's not a lot of money. And sit at home and say, "Well, I, I've hit the lottery for ten thousand dollars." Yeah. So you know, I, I think people. It's enough to bring to people out of poverty, though. Exactly right. It's just terrible. And, which is like, what is you know, it's important. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, so that's they, also another and main so thing. I'm not against making it bigger. I'm just saying, you know, these are all just policy questions. I mine was to to sort of establish a marker and start a debate about exactly the kind of issues you're exploring, you know, about are there better ways to do it? Are there better ideas than universal basic income? Would a sovereign wealth fund be better? Would it be, you know, given as a, you know, some kind of rebate or dividend? I think these are all important questions. And I think, you know, innovation should be better shared. The success should be better shared. You know, when Instagram has eight employees and they sell it for a billion dollars, you know, a lot of people got wealthy and a lot of people are left behind. And so, you know, I, I think 
you know, innovation is going to keep marching on. You know, we need to regulate it to make sure, particularly in areas like biotechnology and AI, that we don't ruin the world while we're doing it. But there's plenty of money being invested every day to, to make breakthroughs in all kinds of areas because there's money to be made. I think our job is more how to redistribute some of that success so we have a society that functions the way we want it to, which is not you know, like the Hunger Games where some group of people in the center are doing well and everyone in the regions you know, are living in poverty. Very well said. Well, Andy, we're going to have to wrap up soon, but before we go, if there's anything more you'd like to add, go ahead. Nope. I really appreciate what you're doing. I think these discussions are the discussions we need for the future, and I'm so glad you're digging into it. Uh, thank you very much. It yeah, was we'll look- great having you.